0: For our listeners, we are talking to Dr. Saga Pansy. He's a nephrologist in the Middle Georgia area. That is a physician that specializes in kidney uh, diseases, the medical management of kidney diseases. Um, going back historically, Dr. Pansy, the initial recognition of kidney disease as an independent illness compared to other medical conditions is widely attributed to Richard Bright's 1827 book that reports on medical cases in which he detailed the features and the consequences of kidney disease. Kidney disease has had all kinds of fancy names, but there was a time when it had just one name. Can you talk to us a little bit, give us the history of kidney disease becoming a thing of its own
1: sure so as you mentioned you know very rightly so it used to be called by one name which was bright's disease and that was one of the physicians you know who uh, played a instrumental role in diagnosing kidney disease in general and over the years of course we've had a tremendous understanding of what the kidneys do what sort of functions Kidneys are directly responsible for what the indirect responsibilities are, and we have a much better understanding of those pathophysiological processes. And of course, there are so many refinements in the way we look at someone with kidney disease diagnose them with different entities within kidney disease umbrella and uh, the treatment algorithms have also drastically changed so yes historically there wasn't a lot that was learned till you know somewhere in the 19th century but uh, we definitely are doing much better there in that department
0: so the study of kidney disease was furthered by Frederick Akbar Muhammad's discovery, and one of your partners is Dr. Akbar, cry, so I had to say cry. that <laughs> it was uh, the the study of kidney disease was made clearer by uh, by F- Frederick Akbar Muhammad's discovery of the link between kidney disease and high blood pressure in the 1870s, with Muhammad's original discovery of a blood pressure of a device called a sphygmograph and not the sigmo manometer that we all know. That is what we use to measure the blood pressure. So Mahmood discovered the sigmograph for measuring blood pressure. And for Greek enthusiasts out there, sigmos is the Greek word for pulse. You know, how has... And you started talking about that a little bit. How has clinical nephrology advanced as of today, from the discovery of an instrument to measure blood pressure to even renal replacement therapy that we have today in the management
1: of kidney disease? Right, absolutely. I mean, things have been uh, remarkable in the past couple of decades. You know, dialysis started probably around 40, 50 years ago and there have been refinements in dialysis initial dialysis was predominantly hemodialysis which is done in a in-center setting uh, where patients have to go there three times a week they have a uh, either a fistula or a catheter which gets connected to the dialysis machine and the process of dialysis is uh, you know to say it very simply is to filter out the blood so basically uh, we are substituting for what the kidneys are not doing. Which patients require dialysis? Well, when you look at the progression of kidney disease, there are different stages. And the earlier stages, uh, the better the prognosis. When someone reaches a stage uh, called stage five, that's when uh, uh, renal replacement therapy becomes inevitable. So stage 5 kidney functioning is when the kidney functioning has dropped to less than 10% on multiple occasions, and oftentimes there are manifestations of comorbid conditions in that less than 10% kidney functioning. So when I see a patient with less than 10% kidney functioning, what's the kind of discussion that I have with them? Well, I tell them that you know, we will need to start some kind of renal renal replacement therapy and there are three options for that. One is to do hemodialysis, which, I men- which as I mentioned, is in-center, and you have to go there three times a week. The second kind of dialysis is peritoneal dialysis, and this is done through the belly, and this is done at home. Patients do it at night, and they are pretty much free in the daytime. The third treatment option, which is pretty much the best treatment option, but unfortunately not everybody qualifies for it, is kidney transplantation. Kidney transplantation requires an extensive workup that has to be performed by the transplant center. After all the criteria are met through that workup, which typically takes three to six months, then a person is either deemed eligible for kidney transplantation, in which case they are placed on a transplant list, if they are ineligible, then obviously they will have to continue dialysis therapy. How long does it take to actually be on the list and get a kidney transplant? So the average wait time in Georgia is somewhere between four to six years for a cadaveric kidney transplant. Now, if there is someone in your family or there is a relative or, or a friend who wants to donate their kidney then you know kidney transplantation can happen a little sooner, maybe within a year or two years. But in the absence of that, it takes around four to six years. And not everyone qualifies for a kidney transplant. There are some age cutoffs, there are some comorbid condition cutoffs. So uh, that evaluation is done by the transplant center. So talking about, you know, so so these are the three aspects of renal replacement therapy. These are the three options that are available once someone reaches a stage that requires dialysis. But the goal really is not to reach the stage where dialysis becomes necessary. The goal is to maximize uh, medications, interventions in patients who have chronic kidney disease, so that we slow the progression of kidney disease and avoid reaching a stage where dialysis becomes necessary. And our understanding of that has changed tremendously. You know, I would divide these interventions into two separate arms. One are lifestyle modifications, and in that it includes diet, exercise, And diet is very important in patients with kidney disease because we got to restrict the salt, sugar, whatever might be contributing. So diet, exercise, uh, smoking cessation, management of blood pressure, management of diabetes, because these are often comorbid conditions. And then on the other hand, are specific interventions that we can do to slow the progression of kidney disease. And that includes a variety of medicines that can be utilized for that purpose. Till around three, four years ago, there was only one class of medicines that we can use in majority of these patients. But recently, our understanding has improved tremendously. There have been some really landmark studies that have been published in several medical journals. And two new classes of medicines are now approved for management of diabetic kidney disease, just to give you an idea of what's happening. I mean, of course, There are several details that are involved, but uh, in any case, you should definitely talk to your primary doctor, your OBGYN, and your kidney doctor about what are the options, what are the interventions that we can do to slow the progression of kidney disease. Now, talking further, you know, so this is stuff that is already established, but you know there's so much more excitement in the nephrology space there's so much research that is ongoing there are several companies pharmaceutical device companies that are very much keen in advancing nephrology care for our patients talking about that you know that they are doing studies of artificial kidneys of course we are nowhere close to getting an approval but there are some studies where there are battery operated kidneys this year they did a transplant of a pig kidney into a person, which did have some limited success. So so there's so much that is ongoing. I mean, all this is experimental stuff. This is not approved for general use. But hopefully in the next five to 10 years, we will have even better treatment options for patients who suffer with kidney problems.
0: So, you know, you talked about, you know, one of the commonest causes being diabetes worldwide and then hypertension. In your space, is there like a new therapy for uh, refractory hypertension such that people might not need medications any longer? You know, it's called the renal denervation. Can you talk to us about that? I know that might be in the future, but I can't just imagine a world where we're treating high blood pressure that leads to kidney disease without any medications.
1: So hypertension, you know, predominantly what we see is primary hypertension, which requires medicines to start with. And most of the times, you know, we are able to control blood pressure with maybe one, two, three medicines. But there are situations where even primary hypertension is very difficult to control with medications. Plus, there are these conditions called as secondary hypertension, where there is a reason why someone is having a high blood pressure. And those reasons typically involve the endocrine glands, but one of them also involves the blood vessels that uh, is supplying the kidneys. is called the renal artery. So one of the strategies for patients who have complex hypertension or difficult to control hypertension or a condition called renal artery stenosis is to do a procedure called as uh, renal sympathetic denervation, and what it does is that they. Uh, this is an invasive procedure. They have to take them to the the heart cath lab, and they inject dye into the renal blood vessel, and they micro ablate, so they burn the renal blood vessels at specific locations. I mean, again, I don't want to get into the technical aspects, too much technical aspect of that, but. The goal is that with that intervention, the primary cause of high blood pressure in these patients is the overactivity of the sympathetic system in the renal circuit and the very high renin and some of the hormonal levels in these patients. And with that intervention, the goal is that they might not need that many medicines and we might actually be able to cure you know hypertension for these patients but again this is not applicable to every patient this is only for a selected number of patients who may benefit from this intervention but again very important to note that you know if you're taking more than two or three medicines talk to your primary doctor and see what options are out there and if you might have a condition which might benefit from some interventions
0: Thank you. And you did talk about, you know, the kinds of ethnicity and the population of people that you see in the dialysis unit that have chronic hypertension. And, you know, one of the groups that you mentioned is the African-American black community. I mean, there's so many psychosocial determinants of health. You know, you talked about avoiding salt, you know, lowering the salt. But then even here in Forsyth, Georgia, there is no grocery store near to where we are. And the only convenience stores sell products that are high in sodium. How can we address, I mean, like really address this problem to the people that are really affected the most by these issues?
1: Right. No, what you said is absolutely, absolutely right. Unfortunately, we are consuming way more salt. And I'm talking we as a society, we are consuming way more salt than what we need. Our bodies, millions of years ago, when there was not that much food and definitely not that much salt, Our bodies were adapted to work in environments where there might be a scarcity of food and scarcity of salt, scarcity of water, sugar, etc. Because these are essential components. You know, we cannot survive without salt, we cannot survive without sugar or water. But uh, our bodies at that time were adapted to work in environments where we would have limited access to these essential components of our uh, diets. But now with the surplus of fast food restaurants and, and uh, several other you know very salty and very sugary foods and drinks, we don't need that much salt. But our bodies have not adapted to this new normal of working in conditions where there is excessive exposure to salt and sugar. Maybe in another thousand of years, we might be able to excrete more salt and sugar from our system. But the way we are right now, we are unable to. So this is definitely a public health crisis. We definitely need to increase awareness among people that diet plays a significant role in several chronic disorders, not just hypertension, diabetes, but the whole spectrum of this cardiometabolic syndrome that we see in people is definitely related to diet. Unfortunately, the reality is that salty food and very sugary food is very rewarding when you eat it. And also it tends to be cheaper than healthier food. So for example, you can go to a fast food joint and you can get maybe a, a full meal for four to five dollars. But if you go to the grocery store for that same four to five dollars, you're probably not going to get much of fruits or vegetables or meat or even milk, you know, when you add all of that up. So that's why, you know, as a society in general, we have to take a different approach, uh, but on a personal level, I think the number one responsibility for someone's health falls on them. And whenever possible, make better choices. Anything that comes in a packet uh, is is predominantly loaded with salt. Anything that comes in a can is loaded with salt. Try to stay away from it. I'm not saying that you need to completely stop eating salt. We all need salt. But the more we can uh, minimize that exposure the better it will be in the long run.
0: And you talked about your practice having done some, you know, food drives just, you know, because there are so many food deserts around this, you know, area that we live in, in middle Georgia. And you talked about your practice having been participants of a food drive, just to, I guess, you know, pr- provide food to people that can't afford it and you know, maybe point them in, in a healthy eating direction.
1: Right, right. Absolutely. Dr. Akbar and his family, uh, they have been very active uh, with that and and uh, they've done some food drives to, uh, to encourage people to, first of all, get them access because uh, you'd be surprised, you know, how many people don't have, you know, food on the table. And second is also at the same time to encourage healthy eating and to encourage better food choices, if you will.
0: Oh, thank you. And thank I
1: know you. that you guys do some stuff over here too, and and that is quite remarkable. You know what you guys are uh, what you guys are doing here. It's fantastic. I mean, this this just goes down to the core of, you know, what is the whole goal of uh, being a physician is to take care of your patients and their family members and the community in general. And and I think, you know, what better example than what you have set up here.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you for that so much. Thank you. Now, just going back to, you know, we talked about the renal replacements. We talked about the dialysis and the renal transplants. You know, women that have had kidney transplants, you know, And for women specifically, systemic lupus diabetes are specific illnesses that can affect their kidneys. But for women that have had kidney transplants, can they have successful pregnancies after and when should the timing of the pregnancies be in relation to after they've had the renal replacement therapy?
1: Right. So for kidney transplant patients, can they get pregnant? Of course, yes, they can. Can they have a successful pregnancy? Yes, they uh, very well can. There are some changes that need to take place in the transplant anti-rejection medicines because most kidney transplant patients these days are on three medicines. One is a steroid, which you can continue in pregnancy. Second is a medicine called uh, tacrolimus. And that usually you can continue in pregnancy. But the third one is a medicine called mycophenolate or Cellcept. And that class of medicines, it's not recommended to continue in pregnancy because that medicine or that class has been associated with causing birth defects. So as soon as, you know, and in fact, in our uh, transplant clinic, we tell patients that if you're thinking of becoming pregnant, Even before it happens, let us know so that we can initiate uh, some folic acid, some multivitamins. And as soon as your pregnancy is confirmed, we can immediately switch you from the cell sept to another agent, which can be uh, safely used during pregnancy. Now, for dialysis patients who are on chronic hemodialysis, yes, they can get pregnant, but the pregnancy tends to be more complicated for them. The outcomes may not be as successful as what we would imagine otherwise for a non-dialysis person. And there are some changes that have to take place to their dialysis schedule as well, where normally in the non-pregnant state, they are going three times a week for dialysis. But during pregnancy, we typically do dialysis six times a week. And that's because we don't want to cause too much of a blood pressure drop during a more aggressive dialysis therapy. So that's why we spread it out over a matter of uh, six days a week rather than doing the same job in just three days in that week. Definitely, it would be a high-risk pregnancy. And there are success stories. You know, I, I don't want someone to get disappointed. Yes, it can be done. It has been done. And definitely, you know, with the cooperation with OBGYN doctors and nephrologists, there definitely can be a success story. Oh,
0: thank you. And for women who do not want to get pregnant, we can also offer active contraception for these women with kidney disease, right?
1: Right, right. Absolutely. And and in those situations, you know, we definitely differ to right, uh, right. good OBGYN doctors like you, you know, to help us out you know, uh, in that department.
0: Thank you. And we typically use progesterone-only pills or, you know, we use a contraceptive implant with no hormones. And these are all safe in in the women that don't want to get pregnant. And now just to, you know, we talked about the kidney transplants, you know, and how... The wait, you said you have to wait five to six years in Georgia if you are waiting for a cadaveric that is from somebody who has passed on. And it could be up to one year if you have a family member that is donating a kidney. So that tells me that there's a supply and demand issue. And I know just like globally, the most commonly trafficked human organ in the whole world is the kidney can you speak to us some about the black market and kidney trafficking
1: right yeah i mean it's it's very unfortunate what's happening and and the reason why it happens is is because of the as you mentioned is the supply and demand mismatch the demand is way more than what the supply is for uh, uh, the kidneys to be transplanted. And unfortunately, in, in several parts of the world, that leads to a uh, misuse of allocated resources, and it's, it's it's extremely unfortunate what's happening there. Now, fortunately, in the U.S., there is a uh, UNOS organization, which is a united network for organ sharing, and most of the transplant centers, are they participate in that UNOS network. So what happens is that, you know, there's a list created for patients who are active and who require a kidney transplant. And on the other side, there is a supply of organs, and then there is a match that happens. In the United States, fortunately, you know, we are very lucky to have a very organized system which uh, gets to the bottom of it, makes sure that there is no illegal activity that takes place. But right now, the waiting times are not what we really want them to be. We want the waiting times to be much less than where it is. But that can only change if more people are willing to donate their organs for whatever reason, You know, like an accident or something happens. And if they're willing to donate, then that would be one way of decreasing the wait times on the transplant list.
0: The World Health Organization said that there are about 10,000 kidneys that are traded on the black market worldwide annually or more than one kidney every hour by the World Health Organization. Is it the easy access to the kidneys in the back? What makes the kidneys so easily trafficked? Is it because... It can be easily harvested and people really need one and not two. So, you know, people feel that they're not killing off that person. Why is it that it's the kidney that is the most commonly trafficked human organ?
1: Right. So, you know, when you compare the kidney to other organs that are uh, transplanted like heart, liver, pancreas, we only have one of them you know so a living person can't really donate their heart or you know donate their pancreas liver yes you know you can donate a part of your liver but it, it's it's way more complicated but the kidneys you know we are lucky that we do have two kidneys so that's why people are uh, capable of donating their kidneys and let me just say something about kidney donation here There is data out there that people who donate their kidneys live longer than people who do not donate their kidneys. And there is a selection bias here. Uh, It's not that actually people are living longer. It's because only very healthy people are selected for kidney donation. So if you have hypertension and you require more than one medicine, if you have diabetes and you require more than, I think, one or two medicines, then you're not allowed to donate your one kidney because uh, there is a possibility that down the road, you yourself might require some form of renal replacement therapy. So, so uh, again, coming back to uh, why is the kidney more likely to be a trafficked organ? And it's because there are places in the world where unfortunately, due to greed and several other factors, and maybe also need-based, people actually sell their one kidney. And this is unfortunately something that that uh, is taking place uh, all around the world. And fortunately, in the United States, uh, the, the situation is very strict and very tightly regulated. And uh, essentially, it's they're, they have done a phenomenal job, the United Network for Organ Sharing, to make sure that there is no illegal activity that takes place. Wow, wow, wow.
0: And you said, you know, we really need one kidney. Most people have two kidneys. Some people have three kidneys. And some people have a horseshoe-shaped kidney. I, can, can you just, you know, say something briefly about the, all the genetic things that could happen with the kidney numbers?
1: Right, right. So by default, you know, we should have two. But horseshoe-shaped kidney is a, uh, is a genetic condition where the two kidneys are essentially fused, and they are like a horseshoe. Does that put the person at risk for having any kidney problems? Not really. You know, as, as long as they have adequate number of those filters, in the kidney in the kidney tissue if you will here you know they should they should be uh, able to live a very happy and a healthy life
0: wow and i have to say uh, as an OBGYN, uh, some young girls even though they have had their typical growth and pubertal development they never have a menstrual period we call this primary amenorrhea and In girls, the commonest genetic abnormality associated with uh, failure of development of the uterus is kidney problems. So when we see uh, uh, young girls that don't have their periods called primary amenorrhea and we start testing them, one of the tests that we must do as OBGYNs is to check their kidneys, search for if the kidneys are there, if they're normal size, the number of the kidneys, and so that's a relationship that that OBGYNs, another relationship we have with nephrologists.
1: Right, right.
0: Yeah. And so I just want to, before we wrap up, I want you to tell, we do have our medical students and midwifery students and all kinds of students that work with us at the foundation and at the center. And for medical students that want a career path like you, can you give a word of advice as to how they could achieve, you know, maybe become a nephrologist and, you know, just want, important role you would give them going through this process?
1: Sure. Yeah, the one thing about nephrology I would say is that there is never a dull moment. There's, There's always something, you know, that you have to pay attention to. There never is a time that you feel like, wow, you know, I'm there's just not much happening today you know so there's always something happening and and i'm not saying it in a bad way you know it, it it's kind of stimulating environment and it and it is challenging and you know if if someone is willing to take on the challenges and turn them into opportunities there is no better specialty than nephrology because you will be motivated and you will be stimulated as you embark on your career path of nephrology. There's so much to learn. There's so much that we already know, and there is so much more that is on the horizon with the advancement in technology and, you know, uh, there are these uh, battery-operated kidney studies ongoing, and maybe Tesla will come up with their own kidney, who knows. But there's a tremendous opportunity to actually be very involved and, most importantly, help out patients who oftentimes might not have the best of health resources to begin with, You know, knowing that uh, a good number of patients that we see uh, kind of inner city population, maybe a lower socioeconomic status may not have access to health services than, uh, than most of the uh, other folks. Uh, so it, it gives us you know, tremendous pride in uh, taking care of, uh, of all these folks who need us the most.
0: So so the medical students finish medical school, go through an internal medicine residency, and then there has to be additional subspecialty training to become a nephrologist.
1: Right, right, absolutely. So a medical school, internal medicine residency for three years, and most places, nephrology fellowship after that would be two years. Some places it would be... Three years, if it is a very academic program, uh, more research oriented. But most of the times it's two years. And then after that, you just have to do your boards and you're pretty much ready to work as a nephrologist.
0: Wow. And for this, uh, just in closing, we're definitely very grateful for the knowledge you've imparted for low resource women. And, you know, basically for everybody, if there's some summary information you're going to give to how to prevent renal disease, you know, without having a lot of resources to do this. What is the information piece of advice you would give a black woman out there, a minority woman, a woman in another part of the world, or any woman you know, with low resources or any woman at all, what are the things we should be doing every day in our lives to prevent kidney diseases?
1: Right. So I think most important is awareness. Awareness of your surroundings, of your environment, of what you're eating, of having any signs, symptoms, suggestive of kidney disease, like swelling of the legs for no reason, puffiness of the face, maybe the eyelids feel swollen. Or, you know, there's one more thing that, you know, we didn't really discuss is even in the urine, if the urine feels very frothy or very foamy, that might be indicative that someone has uh, a good bit of proteinuria or protein in their urine. You know, in the old days, uh, diabetes was diagnosed by making people uh, pee outside. And then they would wait and see if bugs or ants were attracted to that urine. That would indicate that there was a high sugar concentration in the urine. Of course, we don't need to diagnose diabetes that way anymore. But there are several of these markers, if you will, that can tell you that there may be something wrong, especially if uh, someone has a family history of, of maybe an uncle on dialysis or maybe uh, uh, someone with high blood pressure in the family. Uh, it would be prudent that at least once in a while, see a primary care doctor, uh, try to get at least your blood pressure checked. Uh, and if you indeed have high blood pressure then take full responsibility because at the end of the day, you know, the number one responsibility for someone's health falls on them. And, you know, we are here to provide as much assistance. There are several societies that are out there that will provide assistance. And, and that might be financial transportation, whatever it might be. There's the national kidney foundation, which provides a good bit of uh, assistance as well. So, so there are several support systems, but, you know, most important is awareness that, you know, they are at risk for kidney problems and awareness of maintaining a healthy lifestyle and not preventing anything from not getting there.
0: And how much water would you, should we drink every day?
1: So that's often a question that we get asked in the office, how much water to drink? Well, you know, there's this grandmothers all our grandmothers have told us that yeah you're not drinking enough waters yes you know we all need to drink more water but i feel that there is there are no studies that have really shown that drinking more than what your body needs really helps now during pregnancy it's different you know the the guidelines are different and i'm sure you discuss that with your pregnant folks uh, patients as well but in general, I would say drink when you're thirsty. When you're not thirsty, you don't necessarily have to go and drink water then. But the body is telling you, you know, our body has that intrinsic system in place that whenever our blood gets too thick and we need water, the, there are specific receptors that get stimulated and tell us to drink water. And and at other times, you know, we don't feel that thirsty. So, drinking water is essential now it also changes depending upon you know where you live like here in georgia it tends to get so warm uh, in the summer months so we obviously have to keep up with our fluid losses and drink more water but if someone is living in canada or minnesota and it's winter time probably not having that much of insensible losses so it really depends on the environment What the person is doing, you know, if you're sitting on the beach in the sun, you know, obviously you need more water than if you were sitting indoors uh, in an uh, air-conditioned room. So be aware of all of that. But. You know, there is not that much downside to drinking a little extra water than what your body needs. Yeah. It, it will just you will be entertained because you will have to go to the bathroom a little more frequently. <laughs> but that's about it. So
0: Well, we the team of the Cocoa Pods podcast were extremely, extremely grateful to Dr. Saga Pancy a nephrologist in the Middle Georgia area. We're also grateful to Dr. Akbar, who is a member of your team. We're grateful to your group, to your team for just coming on the podcast today and enlightening us on different renal conditions and how we can diagnose and manage these conditions. So we're very grateful to you for enlightening us in, in Forsyth, Georgia and women all over the world. So thank you very much, Dr. Sagar for coming to this podcast today.
1: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Sogari. It indeed has been a pleasure to come over here and have this uh, nice little discussion with you. And I was very lucky that I actually got to see your facility over here too which is really state-of-the-art uh, facility right here in foresight for patients to have deliveries and uh, this this is truly phenomenal and what you're doing with these podcasts is is truly remarkable so thank you very much for giving me this opportunity
0: thank you thank you so much